Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and I'm joining you down a slightly crackly line for a very important podcast about Donald Trump's first military engagement. The United States has fired 59 missiles at an airbase in Syria in response to the government's use of chemical weapons in an attack that killed many civilians. It was the first time that the White House under Donald Trump has ordered military action and the attacks have been immediately condemned by the Russian and Iranian governments. They open up a new phase in the conflict in Syria and are also an important part of Donald Trump's attempts to shape an image on the world stage. Ironically, the decision to launch this attack was taken when he was meeting with the Chinese president, Xi Jinping, in his estate in Florida at Mary Lago. To help us make sense of this, we're joined by two ECFR experts. First up is Julian Barnes-Dacey, a senior policy fellow from our Middle East and North Africa program, who's our lead analyst on Syria. And also coming back to the podcast is Kadri Leek, a senior policy fellow from our wider Europe program who follows Russia very closely. So, Julian, why don't you start by telling us what's going on? Well, last night, uh, the American administration launched a series of missile strikes on an airbase outside of the central city of Homs, from where they allege the um, alleged chemical weapons attack that occurred earlier this week uh, was initiated and launched. Um, It's been a fairly limited, targeted strikes, um, and the administration has has been quick to say that that it's not going to go any further, and this was about making clear that that chemical weapons and the usage of chemical weapons will not be tolerated. Uh, But as ever with these incidents, uh, the initial strikes... Uh, leave as many questions unanswered as, as they answer. And I think uh, we've clearly entered a new moment or a new period of, of the Syrian uh, conflict in which the Americans have finally, after after six years, and despite President Obama's uh, deepest uh, attempts to avoid this, b- become active participants in this conflict. So, Kadri, Russia has until now been setting the pace of action in, in Syria. How have they responded? Well, Russia has issued many statements this morning condemning the attack, uh, but uh, the tone has been different. Foreign Ministry has been scathing, saying that the U.S. Uh, was had planned the attack even before the chemical weapons attack in Idlib, whereas the Kremlin statement, at least what has been published so far, has still been relatively more restrained. But Russia also suspended its agreement uh, on um, deconfliction with the United States. And that is potentially, of course, uh, a, a serious thing. So Russia is signaling its displeasure. But I think on a deeper level, they are, they are still uh, trying to decide what exactly the reaction should be. Negative, yes, but there can be very different degrees of negative. And I don't think that we are seeing the uh, final decision yet. So does this mean that we're going to have conflict rather than collusion between Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin? Of course, yes. Um, I mean, the, uh, the all talk about collusion was, was, was always somewhat uh, far-fetched and, and, and fanciful. 
um, I think Moscow though still keeps up some hope for cooperation and for breakthrough that is based on exactly the sort of less ideological approach of, of Trump administration. Because what disturbed Moscow about the Americans previous administrations was um, liberal world order that Moscow increasingly clashed with. And actually, there have been hopes that uh, Trump world order will be a lot more realistic. And that is something that Moscow would find a lot easier to engage with. I do not know to what extent they are giving up on those hopes now. And that is a big question to watch, because if Moscow hopes that some sort of uh, rapprochement with Washington on the basis of more realist foreign policy is possible, then I think they will um, keep their willingness to cooperate. But if they decide that the United States has again turned into liberal ideologic power, then I guess Moscow will react and react not just in Syria, but pretty much across the board. I think that reaction will be seen in, in many other regions, in particular in Ukraine, where you could see that during the Munich conference, uh, Moscow signaled that it was prepared to escalate. There was a statement about recognition of documents of, of uh, uh, Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics uh, on the territory of Russia. That was a clear signal that Moscow could uh, escalate its actions there in ways that are not uh, pleasant to the West. It's unclear if anyone in Washington was in the position to really read that signal as it was meant. But even so, I, I think that if, if Moscow uh, loses its hope for cooperation, we will see uh, more action from it in all sorts of regions. And it's quite difficult, as you were saying, Julian, to actually read what's going on because, you know, Donald Trump's televised statement talked about defending uh, the Chemical Weapons Treaty and the will of the United Nations Security Council. He did sound almost like President Obama. <laughs> He, he, he sounded very much like Obama, and I think this was, um, in, in terms of the language of international norms in responding to, 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 to the use of chemical weapons, I mean, the language very much embraced the kind of the sense of the international liberal order. But of course, almost the key motivating factor behind Trump's wading into the Syria conflict is not so much, I think, um, the need to, to, to respond to chemical weapons use. It's the desire to differentiate himself from President Obama and to strengthen a, a clearly weakening uh, domestic posi political position. I think at a time when Trump is clearly under pressure for allegations of, of collusion with the Russians, with the failed health care attempt, this is an opportunity, like so many presidents before him, to project force uh, by entering a war in the Middle East. Um, so I don't think one should necessarily suddenly imagine that, that Trump is embracing uh, the, the moral kind of certitudes of the liberal order. This is about uh, strengthening his domestic position and in, in many senses salvaging his presidency after a disastrous opening 100 days. And does it also make people think that America is a stronger power? I mean, lots of people think that Obama's failure to act after he set the red line was catastrophic for American credibility in the region. And, and Trump will no doubt see himself as, as having actually enforced that red line that Obama allowed Assad to cross. He, he will. He will. But I think he'll very quickly face a dilemma that Obama was very aware of, which is that having 
intervened in small measure in Syria and simultaneously, and, and this represents a shift for, for Trump, tying himself to the need for a transition away from, from Assad, effectively regime change, his own credibility is on the line now. And I think he's going to face considerable pressure to do more, um, whether it's um, in response to, 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 to further acts of, 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 terrific, of horrific violence, or even under domestic and regional pressure to say, look, you said that Assad has to go. Are you going to be like Obama and do nothing about it? Or are you actually going to show some metal and put some real uh, sustained weight behind this? And I think Trump is therefore going to going to really um, face a, 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 a immense challenges to avoid going down a slippery slope into deeper escalation in what remains an immensely messy conflict in terms of the, the, the regional and intervention on both sides, the nature of the warring parties on, on both the regime and the opposition side, the lack of an effective opposition any longer in any terms of a, a moderate, meaningful sense. So Trump has, has, yeah. has, in many respects, cornered himself by this. And I think the question of U.S. credibility um, is going to be flipped on its head um, in very dangerous ways for Trump. Catherine, how much are people in Moscow worried that you could actually end up having uh, sort of military entanglements between Russia and America? Because when Obama set his red line, there was no Russian involvement on the ground in Syria. But um, if America starts taking military action now, there is a real danger of, um, of uh, the two sides becoming entangled, isn't there? Uh, yes, indeed. Uh, but of course, in ironic way, that was that everyone in Moscow was expecting from and fearing uh, from Hillary presidency. Many Russian analysts seem to sincerely believe that in that case, had Hillary won a war between the United States and Russia would have been inevitable, starting exactly with a no-flight zone in, in Syria. And so it's a that even though Trump was elected and, and there are always hopes uh, for cooperation, already I see this morning Russian analysts tweeting that instead of collusion, there will be collision uh, between uh, Moscow and, and Washington in, in Syria. But I think what will matter a great deal is exactly uh, what Julian pointed at, how Moscow will read the motivation of the U.S. If they read it the way Julian did, um, as sort of Trump's way of himself from Obama, shoring up his base among Republicans and so forth, then that is one thing. And that is something that Moscow will be able to understand and forgive. But Moscow is very sensitive um, about America trying to think they are, make them fools, uh, trying to cheat them. That, I think, was behind uh, Russia's escalation around 11 um, November, because they thought that uh, with airstrike on Iraqi forces that took place before that, the United States had knowingly misled them, trying to cheat them on the ground and disown the uh, terms that had been agreed. And given uh, the stage where Russian relations under Obama were at that point, Moscow took it very personally and, uh, and, and very badly. So I think Trump, in that respect, will have some benefit of the doubt, and Moscow will not rush to uh, pass on the, the negative judgment. But, but a lot will depend on interpretations. And also, you know, I'm not quite sure. Russia keeps saying that 
the whole chemical weapons attack was not carried out by Syrian forces, but it was uh, a chemical weapons depot of, of ISIS. Um, depends also to what extent they themselves believe it. If they really believe it to be the case, then they would be thinking that the U.S. is cynically flying, uh, lying to them. If they know that they are bluffing, then again, things are different. But if I, if I could just add to that, I mean, I think there's one really important dynamic here, which is in many ways the Russians and the Americans are no longer in control of this process. I mean, I think both of them clearly want to avoid a direct escalation in Syria. Uh, the problem is, I think, more how this is likely to play out on the ground in terms of the domestic and the regional actors. I think, particularly if you look at the opposition side and its backers, this is going to re-energize them. This is a thin edge of the wedge. They think that the Americans have stepped into this. They can be folded in deeper. And I think that, that having stepped back initially was Trump thinking that, that he wouldn't do more in Syria. They're likely to now go at it full on in an attempt to to, to increase the pressure to get Trump to do more. And I think likewise on the regime side, the, the Iranians are going to respond in kind, uh, fearing that the Americans are, are, are treading more into this. The Russians and the Americans are going to be placed on opposing sides of an escalating conflict, which I think is going to become much harder to manage, particularly if the Americans then do get sucked in slowly into a greater conflict. So yes, they both want to avoid it, but if the domestic and regional actors respond to these strikes by escalating the conflict, um, as we've seen so many times before, um, it unleashes a very dangerous dynamic that, that, that almost goes beyond their control. But on the other hand, Julian, I, um, I think also there is a slim chance that if uh, sanity prevails in Moscow and, and if they don't hold it against the United States in these very personal ways uh, they can, then actually they could make use of, of American bad cops uh, to pressure the regime, because I, uh, listening to Russians who deal with the Middle East, I sort of feel it that they fit from some additional leverage on Assad um, and, and also Iranians, whose position is much more entrenched than that of, of Moscow. And so in, in that sense, um, they could make use of it and show Assad that, you see, military victory along your terms is not simply possible. I, I think we're going to struggle with that because I think Trump made a big mistake yesterday, which was to tie this to a political transition away from Assad. I think that he could have done that. He could have leveraged this to move towards a political track. Um, yeah. But by directly naming Assad and saying that Assad has to go, he closed down that avenue. Trump's credibility has now tried to regime change that gets rid of Assad. Assad himself, nor the Iranians are going are, are to be willing to accept that. And nor, I suspect, will the Russians ultimately, because it will look like they folded in the face of U.S. pressure. Um, so I think that if Trump had said, we are, are going to do these strikes and then we want a serious political track, uh, where we where we reach a compromise solution and they make it about a transition governance rather than the person of Assad, that may have been a possibility. But I think that Trump erred by 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 focusing on the person of Assad and essentially shutting down that 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 track. Yeah, on on that I guess you are you are right because that is something that Russia will find very hard to to swallow and and make use of because Russians had really been happy. Uh, that Tillerson had said that Assad can stay for the time being, and Russians were urging Europe to change its position as well. So if, if Trump thinks that Assad needs to go, that is true. That will close down many diplomatic openings. Exactly. Isn't Trump the kind of leader who, who if anyone's able to pivot from one place to another? 
and he seems to be the the genius of um, of being on both sides of, of many issues. So, what do the two of you think that this means for Europeans? Because obviously, Europeans are looking on nervously at re-escalation of the conflict. Um, we've discussed this many times before. The refugees are not going to be heading towards Moscow or towards Washington. And Europe's relationships with Turkey and with other players are, are, are even more fraught than they were at earlier stages in, in, the, in the crisis. What, what do you think the consequences for Europe will be and what do you think Europeans should do? Once again, it highlights, um, you know, the fact that the Europeans aren't so much in the loop. I think the the Brits are now claiming that they were alerted prior to the the attacks actually happening, but but that remains debatable. Um, I think what's clear is that without some kind of meaningful political track, this does cycle very dangerously out of control quite quickly. Trump has shown that he's not willing to put the political energy in that. He's not prepared to put diplomatic capital, to put financial resources in that. And that's somewhere that the, the, the Europeans need to push and need to push hard. As I say, though, it needs to be a viable political track. And if this remains about uh, uh, Assad the person, we, we will end up in the same place that we have for the last five years. Despite the strikes, Assad remains incredibly strong on the ground. He's in a dominant position. The Americans have not taken out Russian or Iranian capabilities to support him. So, so without a, a massive escalation that has huge negative repercussions, a transition is unattainable. But without some kind of political track, uh, you continue this cycle of, of, of devastation. So I think the question that Europeans need to be asking is how can they open up a political space before this cycle is out of control? And how? what does that mean for their own ambitions in terms of Syria, in terms of the political settlement? How far are they prepared to row back? How much are they prepared to lean on the opposition and regional allies to say, look, this is going to go to a point of no return whereby we get nothing and there is nothing worth saving. Let's stop this now. Let's try and work out some kind of viable political track that accepts Russian and Iranian equities and interests and use that as a basis to try and pry something over that actually takes something positive from, from the good of the uprising that, that began five years ago or seven years ago. Um, maybe I'm naive, but um, it actually seems to me that, that right now would, would not be a bad time for Europe to step in with exactly the realistic proposals for political process. Because if earlier it would have been seen as basically just giving in to Russian pressure and many nasty tricks that Russia has done, and basically it would have meant losing face for Europe, then now, uh, after Trump has established himself as sort of anti-Assad or, or, or wherever he ends up being, then that looks different. That, uh, that, that whole process would, would have a different atmosphere about it. And Julian, to what, to what extent do you think it is possible to do something like that? I mean, we've just had this big conference in Brussels, which was a, more of a pledging humanitarian conference than one about the political process. But it was the first time for a long time that Europeans have uh, put tried to put themselves on the map as far as Syria was concerned. And it was ironic that it happened just as the chemical attacks were uh, being carried out within Syria. I think that, that, that um, it's going to be very hard to imagine a, 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 a strong, solid European response now. I, I think the um, 
the Europeans and particularly the French and the Brits have for so long been looking for um, a U.S. military intervention, some kind of escalation that gives them leverage against Assad to get the transition that everyone would ideally like. Um, so I think the European focus now is probably likely to be to to fall in behind Assad, behind Trump, and and and, and having shown this display of force to try and leverage that for a real transition. Um, I think it's going to take some time for everyone to internalize that that that, that Trump uh, Trump's intervention now is not going to deliver what they hope to do. So. Um, whether Europeans are in a place to, to recalibrate their own positions and, 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 and get more realistic remains the core dilemma. And unfortunately, the one thing that we saw in this recent Brussels conference is that they're not really in a place to do that. I think um, although this was a moment where the Europeans tried to get on the map, it ended up being a bit of a damp squid of a conference because of intra-European divisions, because of tensions between the Brussels that wanted to make it something more based in realism. Uh, and the likes of the, the French and the British and others who said, no, we need to stand firm to our core principles. We can't bend. Um, and so, as you say, it ended up being a pledging conference rather than a political conference. So, yes, the Europeans are cautious about how this now unfolds in Syria. Uh, but I think some will be seeing this as an opportunity to, to forge ahead rather than a moment to recalibrate and to think realistically about what is actually viable today. Okay, so we'll, um, I'm sure, be returning to all the different aspects of this in, in future podcasts. But thank you very much to both of you for, for helping us make sense of it. Um, do you have anything on your bookshelves that you want to share with our readers? Kadri, why don't you go first? Um, yes, I can, I can happily share. Um, until this morning, when the news of Syria airstrike came in, I was working on a, a picket project on how Russia tries to influence European domestic politics and what to do about it. Uh, the book that I can specifically recommend, but that it will only be published later, I'm a lucky owner of a transcript, is by Anton Chekhovtsov, a young Russian-Ukrainian scholar who has been looking uh, for links between Russian and European far-right for many years. And his book on, on the subject will be published uh, later this year. But in general, I have been reading a lot about how Russia uh, is, is viewing Europe and, and how European position vis-a-vis -vis Russia is, is formed. There is also another academic book a few years old by Hiski Haukala and company about European member states' views on Russia, which I have found very useful. That delves into fundamentals, how, how member states view Russia, what are their priorities and interests and fears, and how that combines into European foreign policy. Um, no time to look up the exact title, but you can find it. You'll see it on our website where we're going to put links to all these publications. Um, Julian, what's on your bookshelf at the moment? I've just got um, a new book by Philip Sands, who's a, a well-known international lawyer in London. It's called East West Street uh, on the Origins of Genocide and Crimes Against Humanity. Um, and it's a, it's a personal story of, of, I believe, his own family's history dating back to the Nuremberg trials and tracing the, the development of international law and the, 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 the conceptualization of, of, of crimes against humanity and so on and so forth. It's not something that, that an issue that, that I know much about, but, but obviously given uh, my focus on Syria and, and the kind of the immense crimes that we've seen there, 
um, it's something that's on my mind. And I have just started reading a book, which is quite a long way from, feels quite a long way from Syria, but it's called Pax Technica. It's uh, by an Oxford academic called Philip Howard. And he's writing essentially about how the technological revolution is changing both politics and domestic politics. It's called, uh, the subtitle is How the Internet of Things May Set Us Free or Lock Us Up. So that brings this podcast to a conclusion. If you've enjoyed it, please do let your friends know about it. The best way to do that and the most useful thing you can do to, to help us is to give us a review and a ranking on iTunes. And you can also share it with people on your Facebook page, write about it on our Facebook page and tweet about it. There'll be links to all the publications we mentioned on our website at www.ecfr.eu slash podcast. But for now, from Julian Barnes-Dacey, Kadri Leek, and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The editor of ECFR's podcast is Bulin Goemin. <laughs>